and a happy post-Labor Day weekend to you and yours, ladies, fanatics, gentlemen of all ages. I know my own catchphrase. Welcome to Philly's Therapy. My name is Paul Boyer, joined as always by the Athletics' Matt Gelb. Following a roller coaster of a game out in San Diego to kick off a little series out west, that is nothing compared to the adventure our intrepid co-host took to get out to San Diego. More on that in a second. The the Phillies. Are I don't want to talk and... about it anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Phillies are five and a half games up on the third wild card spot, still firmly in the top wild card spot at seventy six and sixty one. They are, and we can we can start talking about this now. They have a magic number. It's posted on the baseball reference wildcard standings. Miami's elimination number is 24. So over the Phillies next 25 games, some combination of, of 24 Marlins losses and Phillies wins gets the Phillies over the hump as things currently stand right now and actually officially clinching, which is fantastic to think about this early in September. The Phillies hold tiebreakers. You can also start thinking about this. Over the Cubs, Diamondbacks, and Reds by virtue of their head-to-head records. They do not hold them over the Brewers and the Giants. And there are three more games left to play against the Marlins to decide that one. So, with that recap in play, let's bring in Matt. Matt, how are you? You've recovered? <laughs> uh, sort of, yeah. I'm in San Diego, so I'm great. Yeah. Like uh, I love okay. it here. It's a great time of year to be out here. It's, it's a really good crowd on Labor Day. Yeah, beautiful weather. Great crowd on Labor Day. Uh, and a game that was, uh, you know, very, very Phillies. It was very Phillies. Uh, I think, I think people are starting to get flashbacks to last September, even though these are not similar situations. I, I think people just remember the, the harrowing nature of last September and can see the bullpen looking a little bit tired here over the last week or so and starting to think, oh boy, are we in for it again? And I, I really don't think we are. The, the situation is just different. The Phillies were fighting for their lives for most of the month with guys whose careers basically were hanging on by a thread in some cases. And this is just a different group. And this is a better group of pitchers. I, I think there is, you know, I, I don't want to wave everything away because I have been, we've both been keeping an eye on Craig Kimbrell for weeks now. He's one guy who, you know, has a lot of experience, but he has been used quite a bit. And I think, you know, we're just getting to the point where some guys, if they have one, need to access that next gear without getting hurt, ideally. And starting pitchers need to get a little bit deeper into games. Didn't really get the best stuff out of Taiwan Walker, even with a lot of run support yesterday, which wasn't really ideal. But, you know, again, they won the game. You can't hold it too much against them. Everything is lessened, Matt, I I think, by the fact, just the simple fact that the Phillies have banked so many wins and they are in such a comfortable position in the wild card. All of this seems a bit minimized right now. Yeah, and it's funny, right, Paul? I mean, it's a team game, and it's no more evident than the fact that, let's not forget, early in the summer, you know, this was a team that could not hit for power. They could not score runs in bunches, and they were propped up literally by the pitching staff, especially the bullpen. Yep. And here we are going to September. The Phillies have now hit, we were looking at this before we got on, have now hit 69 home runs since August 1st. That's like two a game basically for almost five weeks. And the pitching is leaking a little bit. I think it's fair to say. I mean, like, you know, I think some of these guys have hit a wall. They're giving up a little more runs. But um, this is why you play six months because in the ag, you know, you take the picture as a whole. And, you know, we're probably going to see a team uh, that plays home games in the postseason. And 
right now, I think there are some some genuine concerns that you don't want to just solely uh, minimize and just shoo away and, and um, totally ignore. But uh, I remember what it felt like going into September last year, and there were major major pitching issues at the time. I actually just looked this up. They're, you know, they 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 played 137 games now, and last year the 137th game was a game they blew at home uh, in the ninth inning to the Marlins. And the pitchers in that game, I know we do this all the time, but it's still funny to me. The pitchers in that game were <laughs> Kyle Gibson, Vinny Natoli, Sam Coonrod, Brad Hand, and Dave Robertson blew it in the ninth. I mean, and yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's different. Okay. And like, I know there are concerns and I think there's, there's, there's legitimate concerns. I think about Gregory Soto, uh, who, yeah. you know, they tried to squeeze an extra few outs out of yesterday because, look, I mean, like, you go back to Saturday to see, like, where this started. I mean, Nola uh, did not get out of the fifth inning. Ranger Suarez on Sunday only threw four innings because they're bringing him back uh, without a rehab game. And I, I, I get it. I guess, you know, there's some consternation about, like, why do you do that? But, you know, you'd rather have him throw those four innings in the majors. Yeah. Uh, and then Monday, uh, Taiwan Walker, you know, grinded through five innings it wasn't very good but it was good enough it just put it's just put the bullpen in a, in a tough spot here i think and so they tried to push soto you know he got one out uh i don't know what inning it was and then they tried to bring him back for another inning which they haven't really done with gregory soto a lot this year and they they probably paid for it um i thought i thought kimball and alvarado were actually good yesterday i know there wasn't enough strikes um, but I was pretty encouraged, especially with Alvarado, like finding himself kind of in the middle of that outing found, you know, started throwing more cutters, got a bunch of swings and misses, you know, really just like you could almost see him like gain momentum while on the mound in the middle of that outing. Like it started out a little slow. He's kind of pacing around a little bit and you're like, eh, he's kind of nibbling. And then, um, Luis Campusano came up as a pinch hitter and, and uh, Alvarado threw him like three straight cutters and he, he swung and missed that. And, and, and you could almost seem like every time he got the ball back, he was like ready to pitch right away. Like he was almost he was like, Oh, I got it. I figured it out. And yeah. then a great, great at bat against uh, uh, Kim, uh, you know, who's probably the Padres best hitter, at least in the last six weeks uh, in, in a lineup. That's quite good. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, I think there's real concerns. Kimbrel, you know, they had him pitch the eighth inning, uh, and uh, I get why they did it, and I think it worked. I mean, it wasn't pretty, but it worked, and I, I think it would behoove them to get some of these guys a little lighter workload here, um, and that means the pitcher's going deep. Uh, there's an off day Thursday. I think that's going to help. Uh, they're sticking with the six man rotation through the doubleheader, which is uh, Monday. Uh, at Citizens Bank Park, and then I think, you know, they might be able to get the bullpen a little bit of help because they'll move somebody from the rotation uh, into the bullpen, or, or, uh, you know, there, there's different things they could do. Um, I think to just help everybody out in general. So we'll see. Yeah, I was wondering about when that might start happening. You know, it being September and getting the extra active roster spot for a pitcher obviously helps. There's a little bit of extra flexibility there. You know, we've already seen Luis Ortiz go up and down. And I think we're going to see more of that as September goes. Obviously, it was funny watching, you know, Dylan Covey start to get a little bit loose during that game yesterday. And you're like, wait, <laughs> wait a minute. Is that what we've come to? It's just kind of like that strange situation right now where you're in a close game. These wins, you know, you still really you you, you want them. You want to clinch as soon as possible. You want to take everyone you can. You're not going to throw a game away. Um, 
in the name of getting guys some, a little extra rest. You'll defer when you can, if you can help it, but it's a tough little spot right now with the way these guys have been throwing, how frequently they've been throwing the games that they have been pitching in, in the stressful situations. You know, they say that those situations can add, you know, whether it's purely mental or otherwise, they can add a little bit of strain to the guys as they go through. Like this is high pressure. Your heart rate really gets going. It's stressful. It's literally physically stressful, not just for us watching at home. And I'm sure that's something that's at the top of everybody's mind in that dugout as they go through it. It would be great if the way that game started yesterday is the way it ends, where maybe you can work Dylan Covey in and have him, you know, sponge up two plus innings or something like that. That would be great, especially at this time of year. So the concerns are there. Sure. We spent a lot of time talking about it. We're not going to hand wave it right now. You want these guys to be as fresh as they can be heading into the most important innings coming up at the end of this month, the beginning of next one. I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't expect it to just, you know, because they were in a similar position at the beginning of last September. And then, you know, they very clearly found it, uh, you know, come October, you can't just assume it's going to happen again. But I also yeah. think we need to step back and like, look at it and say like the postseason bullpen, the postseason pitching hierarchy or, or depth chart is going to, you know, it's going to be smaller. It's going to look different. These mm-hmm. guys are going to be in different positions by the time, you know, we get to October. I also think we should also not minimize that, you know, Jeff Hoffman is throwing the ball really well. Sir Anthony Dominguez had back-to-back outings Saturday and Sunday that I thought were um, two of his better ones. A lot of strikes. Mm-hmm. Um, not as much swing and miss. There's some swing and miss, but a lot of strikes. A lot of, look, a lot of called strikes. Um, he, he, you know, he. they're hopeful that he's, you know, figured a few things out. Hoffman's been, <laughs> Hoffman's been their best reliever probably for the last, I don't know, three weeks. Uh, you know, Honestly, Andrew Bellotti was the story of last year, and he's been up and down this year. doesn't look quite as good. But Hoffman has just been, you know, you hear the word revelation tossed around. He really is, because this is a guy who I don't think anybody could reasonably have expected him to be a significant major league level contributor when this season started. And not only is he pitching a lot, it's not like in blowouts or anything like that. You know, you look at those last three weeks, like you mentioned, he's been in 12 games. So yesterday against the Padres was his 12th game over those last three weeks. It was a back-to-back. He pitched the series finale in Milwaukee, two out of those three games in Milwaukee, also after pitching on the 30th of August, twice in, during the Angels series. Anyway, these last three weeks, 11 innings, all told, 37 batters faced, 15 strikeouts, one walk, four hits one run allowed that's a, a 274 opponents ops if you want to do some quick math he's fantastic yeah he's inherited 30 runners this year right and mm-hmm. that, and it's a lot and he's and he's let 10 of them score Set, three of them i'm not going to count because they were the bone error friday night and those count yeah yep. you know he inherited the bases loaded and really he got out of it um he did so i mean i'm going to say i'm going to you know I'm gonna, for these purposes i'm going to say he's allowed seven out of 30 inherited runners to score essentially um, they trust him in those spots, and we've seen them use him in in spots coming into a dirty inning. You know, runners on base, and uh, he's got big time swing and miss stuff. There's times where we've seen him not be able to throw strikes, and you worry about him. Remember the you know one of the Cleveland games specifically in extra innings. Um, but uh, this is a guy who I think is is uh, you know could be put into a big spot in a postseason game. Do you agree? Uh, yes, he's he's risen way up the depth chart. I would. The way they're throwing right now, 
I would not be surprised. I don't know if this would be my pick, but I don't. I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, has risen above Sir Anthony on the, you know, if we're just talking about leverage, right? If it comes down to it, it's close at least. It's a discussion yeah. the way he's throwing. Yeah, yeah, and I think more. It's also like situational too, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, maybe Sir Anthony pitches later in the game, but Hoffman comes into a bigger spot earlier, maybe. Like either whether whether there's guys yeah. on base yeah. or there's like the heart of a of a, of a right-handed heavy lineup do up. It, it, you know that that's kind of where they would go to Hoffman over Dominguez, I think, right now. And, and yeah. yeah, I tend to agree. Yeah. It, it it was nice to see a preview of that specific thing too, with Kimbrel coming into the game in the eighth inning yesterday. Now I know it was it's good managing. It I know sloppy. people are going to get yes. upset about it, it but no. it was the absolute right move. It was one hundred percent the right move. I mean, look, you, you manage to the batters coming up, right? You don't manage to the number of the inning on the line score. It's really that simple, as far as you and I are concerned. I, I know there's an old school way of thinking that your best guy is the one who gets the twenty seventh out. I, I get where that comes from. It was like that for a long time. As soon as the save stat really started picking up steam, you would just see games get ended by the likes of the, you know, the Mariano Rivera's, the Trevor Hoffman's, you know, all those folks, the Craig Kimbrell's. But when you get down into these games, the way we've, I don't want to call it enlightenment because then I think you get into ivory tower stuff and people start tuning you out. I'm really trying. I don't want to be elitist about this stuff. It's just a different way of looking at it. It's not saying it's better or worse. I think it's better, but I'm not going to be like, no, get get your old crap out of here. Cause that's not the way it should be. I want to be welcoming to ideas and everything, but I also want to make sure that we're, we're explaining why we think this is good the right way and not coming out of just like, well, because it's better, duh. Like that's not going to get through to anybody. You bring Craig Kimbrell into the game in the eighth inning because the Padres' best hitters were coming up in that inning. If you put somebody else out there, hypothetically, a lesser reliever or the guy you don't trust as much as your best guy, and that lead evaporates in that inning, then there isn't a lead to protect in the last inning. It's really just that simple. You want your best guy facing their best guys if the opportunity presents itself. It did. Kimbrell got out of it, which helps. Didn't look great. But that's still the way you want to go. It's it's just it process and results are not always lined up. And I think that's where we can get thrown a little bit sometimes. If something goes wrong, the inclination can be to think that, oh, well, then it wasn't the right move. It wasn't the right way to go about it. Process and results need to be evaluated differently sometimes. I think what we can appreciate, too, is that really, Paul, I mean, they, they've They've used Craig Kimbrell as a very traditional closer for the entirety of the season. They really have, yeah. Because so because he because, he because he earned it. You know, he earned it. Um, he wasn't the guy at the start of the year, but he earned that spot. And if it's the spot that he is most comfortable pitching, which it seems like it is, it's done it his whole career. He, you know, he's saved more games than than most pitchers who have ever pitched in the sport. And uh, they have used him as a traditional closer, and it has worked. But they are also showing that they have the flexibility and the open-mindedness, both in the man, you know, both in the coaching staff and the manager, and in the player himself, that they can they can pivot to a situation like this when it's warranted. And I think Monday was a spot for it. Yeah, you just you have to think of it like it is the save situation, right? That ha- if if you are somebody who thrives on adrenaline and you know really gets revved up by the big spot capital b capital s you just have to think of that what we saw in the eighth inning as the save situation it's the big moments 
you have a, a save situation lead. You have the top guys in Kim who Hassan Kim is having one of the quieter, like, I think he's up to he's six good. wins th- yeah. this season like that. Like he's, he's having a really good year. Uh, Padres, man, what the hell? <laughs> I don't know. Tatis Soto, you know, getting Machado and Bogart standing in. Nice play, by the way, Alec Boehm sticking with a, a spinner off the bat of Xander Bogarts to uh, avoid <laughs> avoid disaster. A couple a couple bits of, of disaster avoided in that inning that I'm sure, you know, Padres fans think is a microcosm of their season with a, an errant throw on a double steal hitting an umpire in the chest to probably prevent that game from getting tied. But, you know, game's over. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just sometimes you sometimes you just need those breaks. Sometimes you just need those breaks. If that happened in a playoff game, if that had happened during last year's NLCS, we'd still be talking about it. I'd still be talking about it. Okay, um, so on the list, uh, on the list, just thinking about this, like on the list of Phillies pitchers right now, Paul. Yeah. Uh, give me, give me the two guys at the top that you're, you know, the two guys you're most concerned about here on September fifth. <sighs> two guys we're most concerned about here on September fifth. Um, I it could be a big guy, it could be small, it doesn't matter, and it could be yeah. a specific concern. It doesn't, you know. Yeah, I I think my concern, my top concern, is still with Nola because he's your number two, he's your game two guy. He is somebody you need to go pick up a little bit, pick up more than fifteen outs, right? Get deeper into the game. Ideally, pitch into the seventh if you can, you know, muster it. The expectation is that you're good enough to do that. He had a couple good starts in a row and then old Nola, old 2023 Nola resurfaced. And there's just, there's not that comfort, that confidence that you have when he's at his best. We've seen him at his best. We've seen him, you know, vanquish September demons last year. We saw him be a top three Cy Young award finishing pitcher a few years ago. We know what's in him. We know where the potential is and he is still not really even quite within shouting distance of that right now. And he just seem he just seems further removed from that top guy status that we want him to be with that. We know he can be. And if you have Zach Wheeler thrown like he is great, probably the least concern of anybody on the entire roster. As far as I'm concerned, Zach Wheeler, uh, you want the guy who picks up the ball in the next game in the series. If you back up Zach to, Finish it off if it's a wild card series to keep momentum going or conversely in a surprise drop, pick the team back up, you know, shoulder the load a little bit. So I, I still have some concern about Aaron. I would like it doesn't really mean much really literally, but I would like to see him end his year on a high note with some good momentum, carry something into the playoff series with something I can believe in a little bit more than I have uh, for most of this year, which is unfortunate. And I think the second guy, the second guy would, would probably be Soto. If I thought he was the guy that they were going to use a lot during these games in the playoffs right now, I just don't think he's going to be used that much if they can help it. And I think that lessens the concern a little bit there. You're going to see a ton of Kimbrel Alvarado, Sir Anthony, and probably Hoffman, Strom, if something goes really wrong in the fourth or fifth inning, would be your guy to pick up a couple, you know, in the middle. And then, you know, Soto is Soto's available, but he's not a guy I would put ahead of any of those others that I just named. 
And then you factor in the fact that, you know, maybe Chris Sanchez is available as a playoff reliever and you might throw him out there in front of Soto. So I don't know how much I could be concerned about him. So I'll, I'll stick with Kimbrell, but note that it's a minor concern. He's been there. He knows how to get through seasons like this. I would like to see him rediscover what made him so fantastic in the middle of this year. And whatever that is, whether it's mechanical, mental, I don't know what it is. Um, also finish his season, his regular season out on a high note. Okay. So those are all my words, Matt, who, who tops your list? So the Soto thing is interesting to me because I'm looking at the Cubs, right? You know, uh-huh. the, the team that the Phillies are most likely right now to face in a three-game series uh, for the wild card. And the way their lineup typically goes, uh, it's Mike Talkman, a lefty uh, at the top, Nico Horner, righty, bat second, Ian Happ, a switch hitter, uh, who's much better against righties, bats third, and Cody Bellinger, a left-handed hitter, bats fourth. Bellinger this year has crushed lefties uh, despite being left-handed. Um, mm. Insane numbers. Um, a 982 OPS against lefties. Wow. Talkman, the leadoff hitter, 647 OPS against lefties. Uh, I didn't look up Horner, but Ian Happ against lefties, 679 OPS. Um, there are going to be opportunities if they face the Cubs and if they use that lineup, which is the lineup they've used for the last week or so, um, probably more than that, uh, you know, for, for a lefty pocket there. And Soto's numbers against lefties are phenomenal. You know, they're among the best in the league right now. Soto right now against lefties, 103 batting average, 184 on base, 177 slug. Um, you know, really good. But Bellinger hits lefties, and now you're like, okay, do we trust Soto, even if it is lefty heavy there? Or because Nico Horner in the middle there is right-handed, do we trust Soto there? And the answer is probably not right now. And you mentioned Chris Sanchez, you know, possible postseason reliever. I would take it even a step further. I mean, Ranger Suarez to me in a three-game series, is most likely sitting in the bullpen, right? Mm. Kind of filling that hybrid role. And in a five-game series, maybe, you know, he's starting a game for you um, just with a longer series. But uh, I think in that first series, he's sitting in the bullpen. He's a weapon for you out there. Maybe that's his spot, right? Mm. Middle of the game, top of the Cubs lineup. Maybe he's the guy they shoot uh, into that spot. So Soto's on my list. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when we get to the postseason, like, where is he on the bullpen depth chart, Soto? Once you move, you know, hypothetically, Lorenzen and Suarez and Sanchez over to the bullpen, um, Soto's probably, like, the sixth or seventh guy. And it's a good guy to have, um, you yeah. know, if, especially if you need somebody early in the game or middle of the game to face a lefty pocket. Uh, or maybe, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're going to shoot your shot. They did this last year. Remember Brad Hand came in to a spot here in San Diego where it was like, get one out here to finish this inning. It's a lefty hitter, and that's all. We don't need to do the three-batter thing because if you get this guy out, you know, we're done. He didn't get him out. Then he has to face a couple righties, and you run that risk. So maybe they try that. Maybe there is a spot with Soto where there's two outs and there's a lefty up, and they're like, get us out of this inning, man. Get this lefty out, and that's all we need. Um, that could be a spot for him. Uh, the top of my list, I think, right now, so Soto's on my list, I guess, of the, he's the second one. The top right now, it's a very particular uh, issue, and that is Taiwan Walker, and specifically in the first inning. Mm. Uh, because I'm thinking about the postseason. Yeah. Let's say, you know, let's say they get to a game three against the Cubs or whoever they play in the first round, and Walker's your starter for game three, do or die game. Everybody, hand, all hands on deck. Um, you know, probably not the longest of leash on Taiwan Walker, depending on how they use the bullpen the previous two days. But regardless of that, short leash. And you you know you want him to get 
you know, hopefully through the lineup at least once, right? You know, try to get nine batters or, or even more than that if he's pitching well. But right now, like, he gets off to so often routinely is getting off to a really bad start. And that doesn't matter as much in a regular season game. It matters a whole hell of a lot in a postseason game. Yeah. And he's got a six seven five ERA in the first inning right now. Uh, gave up another run in the first inning yesterday after the Phillies got out to a lead. Uh, ton of walks in the first inning, a bunch of home runs. Uh, just something they need to look at. And they said, you know, both Rob Thompson and Tylen Walker said that it is something that they're trying to figure out. They're wondering if they have to adjust something pregame or, or just look at how he's mixing his pitches in the first innings of games. Um, something to really focus on here, I think, in his next few starts uh, as they try to decide you know, what the best route to go is, uh, you know, if there's a hypothetical elimination game and they need to decide who's going to start that game. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a good call out. There is a nice, easy segue to more top of the order chat, starting games off, getting things going, getting the ball rolling. And that is Kyle Schwarber, who homered again yesterday cranked another one almost to the second deck in San Diego. Just absolutely pummeled that ball. He is, as you may have noticed, your leadoff hitter. And there continues to be, I think I think we're getting into these old school and old school waters again, but I'm just, whatever, we're going for it. There continues to be some consternation, some frustration, some curiosity about what Kyle Schwarber's game is. I think we've come to realize over these, you know, almost two complete seasons with him in Philadelphia and longer, if you've been watching him for longer, that this is a guy who's not going to win a batting title, that this is a guy who does not thrive on hitting the ball where it's pitched necessarily. This, <laughs> this is a guy who comes up knowing that he's one of the strongest dudes in the entire sport and can hit a ball 500 feet. If he sees it now that leads to some strikeouts, even though he's hit 40 home runs for the second straight year, you know, joining the likes of Ryan Howard, and Mike Schmidt among these, you know, these Titans of Philadelphia Phillies power hitters in history, he's hitting under 200 and the Mendoza line is, and may always be something that makes people uncomfortable. It's not really something they want to see especially not at the top of the order. Archetypically, you think of the top of the order as guys who put the ball in play a little bit more frequently. And I'm not just talking about over the seats, like just where fielders could theoretically pick it up. They get more hits as a result of that. The average is a little bit higher. But because Kyle Schwarber has such a good eye, he has a great on-base percentage, and the slugging is still high. He's still OPSing over 800 despite hitting under 200. And Matt, there is there may never be an easy to find middle ground with Kyle Schwarber, but I think we should try. I think we should try because now there's getting to be some thought that this guy is of little to no value sabermetrically, I guess because his defense is not great because he is playing a position that he's basically mandated to play because of, you know, injuries and other situations. Like, he, he is a guy who can stick out in left field. He is in the lineup every day because he can hit balls a million miles. But that has caused his, his measure of value, objectively, his measure of value, 
to go down. And that's getting some people thinking like, oh, well, is this guy really all that good? Is this really what he's meant to do? And before I keep going, I was just wondering if you'd like to weigh in here, if you had some thoughts about what it is about Kyle Schwarber that either gets people going, that we can't seem to get over this hump and find common ground of understanding, you know, what it is he actually brings to the team. And if there's a way to move past that, and if it gets to him at all, what he's hearing maybe about this stuff, because once it gets loud enough, you know, maybe it gets into the clubhouse and you start hearing some of these things. I was just wondering, you know, what do things look like around Kyle Schwarber these days? I appreciate Schwarber's season for its extremes. And I also appreciate how it, there's two things that make both, you know, new school and old school fans look at him and say, what the hell? Right. I mean, it's like the perfect storm. You know, and and a, a a newer school or, or a or a data driven fan can look at it and say, "Wow, like his WAR. I mean, he's barely above replacement level, and it's obviously tied to his defense. And he is probably the worst defender in baseball this year. Don't think there's any disputing that. And there's the Phillies aren't disputing that. Kyle Schwarber knows it. They know it. Like they know how bad he is in left field, and they know that they have to get him off of there. And that again remains the plan. I think they're. They're slow playing Harper right now. I think they don't want to push the back, and I, I get that. But I think come October, Kyle Schwarber will be the DH, and Bryce Harper will be at first base. That is the plan. That is still the plan. There isn't anything that has changed, I think, to suggest that that isn't going to happen. Um, then an older school fan can look at Kyle Schwarber and say, the guy is hitting 193. He's hitting 193, and he is batting leadoff. What is going on here? And so I love this. Like I love everything about it. The fact that hmm. we can't. We can look at him and say, (laughs) this guy does two things, two very important things incredibly well. He gets on base and he hits for power, right? We can agree that those are two very important things and that Kyle Schwarber does them really well. Yep. And still, we can have a really rational, reasonable disagreement about how valuable is this guy. And... I don't know. Like it's so funny. His season this is an insane season. I don't think that we've ever seen anything like this. You know, he's twenty walks away from tying the franchise record uh for walks in the season. That was Lenny Dykstra uh, in nineteen ninety-three. Uh he had hundred and twenty-nine walks that year. Like what how differently would people look at Kyle Schroeder, Paul, if let's say instead of, you know, he's got hundred and nine walks. Let's say mm-hmm. 20 of those walks are singles instead. Okay. And mm-hmm. instead of hitting what he's hitting right now, which is 193, he would be hitting 233. Do you think if he had 20 fewer walks and 20 more singles, just singles, do you think, how do you think he would be looked at? Would he be looked at totally differently? I think it would help, but totally differently? No. I don't think totally differently. There's probably. There's probably some imaginary line in the middle there where our brains start thinking of these guys as being better mm, contact hitters, I guess would be the term, than they might be. I don't know if you see somebody who's hitting 193 and somebody who's hitting 223 and think they're all that different. Maybe I'm speaking for too many people, but I don't think there's a huge separation in perception there. I know the slugging would go up because you're turning those walks into uh, into hits, right? Yeah. Adding a couple extra bases, and theoretically, like say here, the on base percentage doesn't change. That's fine, and it just things change a little bit. I don't know about totally, but Matt, I, 
I don't know how to, I don't know how to argue, I guess. I don't know how to put this out any other way then. On base percentage is a term that sounds kind of ugly. And I think people get a little bit turned away by it. First of all, it's not a percentage. It's a three decimal point figure. I don't know why we started calling these things percentages and averages. It's not an average. Anyway, if you think of OBP as what it really is, which is the amount of times you do not make an out at the plate. And the ultimate goal of hitting is what? To not make an out. (laughs) If you are really good at the not out making percentage, that's good. No matter what the, no matter what the share of hits is, because that's what batting average is. Batting average is the share of hits that go into the not making outs percentage. That's what it is. It can tell you things about a player. You know, Luis Arise puts things together differently than Kyle Schwarber does. And you look at their different batting averages as a share of on-base percentages, not making outs. And you start to see things a little bit differently, right? Like, Luis Arise is still hitting 356. His on-base percentage is 398. Hmm. And that's good. So a huge share of the way he gets on base is by a base hit. Okay. That's informative. Doesn't really tell us much more than that from a really high level. Kyle Schwarber, almost half of the times he gets on base safely are by walk instead of by hit. That's all it means. Now, he doesn't have as high of an on-base percentage because he doesn't have as many hits. But again, we're comparing apples and oranges almost literally here. It's mainly just to show that on-base percentage is a really important thing that to me is way more important than batting average. You can have a low batting average that can exist in a plane where your own base percentage is still good. I have one more question for you. Yeah. Okay. How differently would we be looking at Kyle Schorber if he had DH for the majority of the season? Well, there you go. I mean, that's, that's a big difference right there. I, you'd zero out his defensive war instead of having it be in the negatives which helps let's just like flip like for example he started 98 games in left field and he's had yep. 38 games of dh let's flip that uh-huh. let's yeah. say he had 98 games of dh and 38 games in left field yeah i i think you'd find people who are are significantly more comfortable with the season he's had again i'm speaking for a lot of people but i think that's the case i really think that's true the fact that we've seen him struggle in left field and it's it's been sad i don't like i don't like watching that I don't like seeing him have a hard time out there. His, his mobility is not great. He's had a couple balls clank off his glove, and it, I, I don't like seeing that for him. I know he doesn't feel good about it. You know, I, I just don't like seeing that happen. If you flip that, you minimize that. Maybe there are times where if you played it right, uh, you get a little revisionist history and say, you know, balls that clanked off his glove or ones he got to saved a couple bases or saved a couple runs. Maybe you steal an extra win or two. I, I don't know. I think even without that, you find people who are more content with it because the impact is switched. I, I think so anyway. So I think with all these caveats that we've put out there. There are a lot of caveats, I, yeah. I think he's had a productive season, and I think he's worth more than one win. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. And I'm fully acknowledging it. Like, the defense is, uh, is terrible. It has really cost them. It has. But I think we have to like the the reason why he's out there is is because there was no other choice. <laughs> it's not as if the Phillies constructed the roster and said we're acquiring Kyle Schwarber to play every day in left field for us. 
like the valuation. I think you have to separate the circumstances from like that valuation, right? How you value him, because that was not their intention. Like their intention was him was for him to DH at least half of the time. Mm-hmm. And you know the, the circumstances surrounding Bryce Harper forced them into Kyle Schwarber playing left field every day, and uh, it, it's not very good. It's bad out there. I don't think the Phillies are uh, dancing around that. I think everybody knows it. So I think you have to almost separate. Um, you, you'd rather have the bat. To me, like it is a still a net gain and more than a one win net gain of having his bat in the lineup every day. And also having to deal with the defense. Yeah. And I don't know. That's hard for me to, to say because, like, I think war is a really good measurement. I think it has flaws, but it is a good measurement of the value of a player. I think it's as close to as good as we have, like, to measure the value of a player. Uh, but Kyle Schwarber has made me rethink, like, how we look at how we look at these guys. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you this, like, I don't know if there's been a transaction in the last five years that has been more important than the Philly Sonic Kyle Schwarber. Mm. Like I fully, truly believe that. <laughs> I mean, this guy, like, I don't know, like he's, he's just, he's the best clubhouse leader. I think I, I've, I've seen uh, in, in my time covering the Phillies. Um, he just has a way of uh, making people feel comfortable, feel good. Um, he has a way of, of, you know, really just being the voice in that clubhouse who is getting everybody uh, on on the same page and on, and staying on the same track and staying focused uh, on on the task at hand. And I see him interact with different guys every day in that clubhouse, and um, it's impressive. Uh, this guy is real. Uh, the effect in that clubhouse is real, and. Uh, that's something that I cannot be measured. I'm fully aware of that. And I also know that there might not be a huge value to it. Um, can I have a debate about that? But uh, I think the overall picture of Kyle Schrober is, is that of a uh, integral piece to the Phillies. Um, totally flawed, uh, but fascinating. <laughs> like I just, I, I think I can just sit here and appreciate the extremes of his season because I don't know that we'll ever see anything like this again. It is just bizarre you know 42 percent of his hits this season are home runs <laughs> and he bats 42. lead off and that's just hilarious like they've leaned into it they totally Man. leaned into it and i appreciate it and actually i appreciate um dennis lynn who's our, our great uh padres beat writer at the athletic um he asked bob melvin about schwarber after yesterday's game and i love bob melvin's quote and bob melvin i think is you know still one of the better tactical managers in the sport i know the padres have had a really rough year um but this is what Bob Melvin said. He said, those are the kind of guys you want at the top of the order. You know, the average doesn't look great. The OPS does. And you're always worried about walking him because he walks a lot. You throw it over the plate, he's got a chance to hit a homer. So it's unorthodox, but he's probably in the right spot in the lineup. And, mm. yeah, I think he's right. <laughs> as as unconventional, as stupid as it looks at times, I think he's right. Look, I, I'm right there with you with regard to Bob Melvin. I've always liked Bob Melvin, liked him when he was with Oakland. Uh, there's something about the guy. Like, I, I'm not in a clubhouse day to day. I've only ever spent, you know, part of one season in a minor league clubhouse. <laughs> uh, so I I can't speak to it with any kind of authority that that you can. But yes, there there is something that's always struck me about Bob Melvin as being a guy who who 
has his head on straight and knows what the heck he's doing and has a good feel for things. And to hear him say that, it it does feel nice to have my view of this reinforced because it is weird and it is challenging to the way I grew up seeing lineups constructed, seeing, you know, the kinds of hitters that were put on the top of lineups, watching as this sport has evolved from, you know, thinking that guys like Schwarber could only ever hit fourth or fifth to leading off and not just doing it for a stretch when a guy gets hurt, but for doing it as plan a for the vast majority of a season, you know, if nothing else, I think that could be the attitude. And what I've tried to do, you know, as I've grown older and watched more of this sport is to just try and be receptive to these weird things and look at it more as a fascination than something that frustrates me or angers me because it challenges those conventions, you know, I've learned to think that I want my conventions challenged a little bit more and to see things like this play out a little more experimentation, uh, a little more, you know, what the heck are they thinking? How, how is this working? How, how are they making this work? How did that come together? And I think this is a perfect case study for that very thing. You know, I, I I look back at Alfonso Soriano years ago when they started, when he was leading off, he was one of the first guys I really think back of whether that's true or not for my exact age. I don't really care. He's the first guy I think of when I think of like powerful leadoff hitters and really yeah. starting to getting things, get things changed in my head about the way we could look at a lineup like that. And about the only similarity between he and Schwarber is that they played left field sometimes, but <laughs> uh, seeing that and letting that be a foundation for what we see now is just like, yeah, that is kind of fascinating, isn't it? That's kind of wild. And bonus points that, yeah, objectively by the numbers, at least, you know, the ones outside of batting average, which are all part of the big picture, it is working. His OPS is good. His on-base percentage is good. He's got 40 home runs again. He's positive. It does make you wonder like, oh, okay, do I need to change the way I look at war? And I think the answer is yes. I think the haziness around the number that you need to, make the margin of error in your brain enormous and start thinking like, okay, they are not exactly a 5.5 win player. They are somewhere in the universe of being a five win player. There's and tears. They, yeah. 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 It yeah more it's acceptable. more better looked at that way. Yeah. 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 Um, it's great. And, and I think that's a healthy, exciting way to look at it. And a good way to be a fan is to, um, it helps when things go right. And I understand that if they start going wrong, then maybe, you know, we're not as cheerful about it. Um, but for the time being, while it is working, I think the fascination is healthy and helps add to the joy of the sport. It's fun. I like these debates. Yeah, I think fun. I don't think anyone is necessarily wrong. I mean, he's hitting one ninety three. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he's hitting one ninety three and he has struck out one hundred and seventy five times. You know, that that has to be better. Um, the OPS plus, which is one of my favorite measurements, I think, Paul. I mean, it has him as twenty percent, twenty one percent better than league average right now. And has he been more than 20% worse than league average in left field? Probably. But I don't know. <laughs> you know, just let, let the let the healthy, polite debates continue. Let's just make sure we don't go at each other's throats over this stuff. It doesn't matter that much. Okay. I, Matt, I think that's a good place to wrap up. You did mention that you wrote about Kyle Schwarber today in The Athletic. I think everybody should go check that out. Um what else do you got going on there? Are you just enjoying the rest of your time in San Diego for these next two nights? 
Yes, just enjoying it. Um, yeah. Now I have a lengthy interview uh, that I did with uh, a, a prominent Phillies player. People um, might have more of appreciation for now, and uh, that'll be that'll be on the Athletic this week, possibly Ooh. Wednesday morning. Oh, okay. All right. So stay tuned for that. We're recording on Tuesday. So if you're listening now, you don't have much longer to wait. As long as something crazy doesn't happen in the game Tuesday night, which, uh, you know, I'm sure nothing crazy will happen, right? Uh, Yeah, no, of course. Nothing crazy has been happening lately. No, not at all. Well, you'll be fine. It'll go up. I wrote about Alec Boehm, too, over the weekend. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he had an interesting weekend. You know, we haven't we didn't talk about the Brewers series at all. And maybe that's best that we didn't. But uh, he's. He's had a good season. Uh, it's not, again, we can have, you know, you can have a lot of debates about Boehm, especially, you know, the different ways that his defense has been measured this year. There is there is some disagreement, I think, just over the stack cast metrics and then typical, um, you know, more um, DRS kind of stuff. Um, uh-huh. It's hard to get a true picture, but I think he's, I don't know, um, hate using this word, but he's definitely passed the eye test this year. I feel like he's... Um, you know, watching him on a regular basis, he's better, uh, especially at third base. He's better. Um, you know, that mistake Friday night notwithstanding. And I think it was a good time to sort of capture, you know, where he is, uh, both in his season and sort of in the progression of his career. And I think the overall portrait is that of an improving player. I'll, I'll be sure to revisit our preseason predictions, but I don't think any of us had Alec Bohm hitting 100 RBI this season, which he is on track no. to do. Yeah. You were mentioning, you might be three guys at 100 RBI. If Schwarber is 89, uh, Bohm's got 86, and Castellanos is 85. Yeah. They're hitting, man, and a lot of it has been on the backs of the last five weeks, which the offense continued yesterday uh, as they held on for a win. Two more in San Diego coming up, and then the final three against the Marlins for the season, which will help uh, finalize those uh, playoff tiebreak scenarios, which is wonderful. And it bears repeating that the Phillies have a magic number. The countdown to the clinch is on. And hopefully the Phillies keep riding those hot bats to bank in some more wins and bringing that clinching date a little bit closer each day. Don't forget to go read Matt's stuff on The Athletic. Wonderful as always, along with that wonderful tease for whatever midweek story he's got coming up. Go check that out. For Matt, I am Paul. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Go Bills. Go Bills.